I had to bring a backup Bible today because uh, mine's falling apart and I wasn't sure if your lectern would hold my pages up here or not. So uh, that not being the case, uh, thanks to Leanne for loaning me her Bible. <clears throat> well, uh, most of you know that I teach uh, Bible down at Florida College and the academic year of 2020 in the fall and 2021 was a particularly grueling year. Uh, for a number of reasons. It was the COVID year. Uh, the only bright spot the whole year was we had a Bible teacher leave in the middle of, this, of the uh, academic year. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can't keep hoping on those things. So I got to the end of the spring semester and I was in a, in a Bible class and I was trying to make a point about how something was so simple. In an instant, it flitted through my mind, taking candy from a baby like robbing the cradle or shooting fish in a barrel. And so I said, it's like shooting a baby in a cradle. <laughs> and the moment I said that, I said, oh, no, no. What are these people going to think of me? Well, they'd figured that out long by then. Uh, but the, the equivalent of shooting fish in a barrel is asking people the question, how is your prayer life? It's the uh, same as asking them, uh, how humble are you? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, uh, the moment you say that, you reveal to people you're not doing very well at all. And who in the world in their right mind is going to say, oh, my praying life is great. Everybody realizes, yes, I can do better. He fell out a survey, everybody's going to say, yes, I can do better. And I want to think a little bit together today about prayer and in particular, whether God will answer our prayer or how he answers our prayer. Uh, there's so many things we could say about prayer. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther said. He was sitting at his table one day and eating a piece of meat and the dog was sitting there just looking at him, just fixed on that piece of meat. And it occurred to him, you know, if I focus on God and prayer like this dog does this piece of meat, how much better my life would be spiritually. And I think that is so true. It's obvious to us. If we could maintain that kind of focus constantly, we would not be in the spiritual trouble that we so often find ourselves. And prayer is one of those things we think about uh, when we think in terms of a relationship with God or even just mere religion, any kind of spirituality, there has to be a life that is given and dominated by prayer. We understand that. And we might be thinking about uh, things that we face in life, like the, the COVID, COVID pandemic or when travel is taking place. And those th things are not slight things. Uh, we'd prayed before we left on our trip from Florida that we'd have a safe and uneventful trip. And the way the Lord answered that prayer was we had a tire that was on the verge of blowing out and yet could detect the symptoms uh, soon enough to stop and, and get it taken care of. And so nothing tragic happened from it. But if my preferences were involved, I'd rather made the whole trip with no problems at all. And so we do pray about kind of mundane, common things. I remember when I was a young man, I don't know how many times I prayed that God was going to see to it that I married that certain young lady. It reminds me of the old song by Garth Brooks like 30 years ago. Uh, it was a number one hit in 1991, uh, Unanswered Prayers. You know, 
Thank God that he does not always answer our prayers. Well, I think I understand what he was saying about that. Um, you know, it's like conversations we have. Sometimes we talk with people about very ordinary things. Sometimes we have very superficial conversations. And sometimes we have very in-depth conversations. And it may very well be that we're not that concerned about whether God answers our shallow prayers or our prayers about mundane and common things. But those deepest longings of our heart, those things that we yearn for more than life itself, does not Satan want to whisper in our ear, is God really going to answer your prayer? And as much as you want this thing, as much as you yearn for this, and it's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing, is God really going to answer that prayer? And what are you going to think of, of a God who does not answer that prayer? When he does not grant you what you want, what, how will that impact your relationship with God? And so that's something I want us to think about. There's a very common answer, of course, to this, which is that God always answers prayer. And sometimes God says yes, and sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says maybe, or wait, or you need to grow. And I think all those things are true, and I'm not here to quibble about how we might answer that question about God answering prayer. But I do think that Scripture shares with us a very uh, fundamental way of thinking about this that I find helpful. And if you find it helpful as well, then I think our time together will have been well spent. Well, before we get into that, I just want to, again, share uh, my uh, thanks for being asked to speak. Uh, first time I've been in uh, your new building here. And uh, yet that's not the most important thing about this group. Uh, what's important about this group is who you are. And I've always had a great uh, fondness for you and uh, pray for you uh, constantly. And just uh, hope uh, that uh, you will continue to stand faithful and strong for the Lord. And uh, if there's some small way I can pay back to you what you have uh, done for me over the years, uh, then uh, that gives me some degree of pleasure as well. Well, you've come to hear what God has to say about these things. So let's begin in 1 John chapter 5. And there are four things, four principles that I think help us to understand about how God goes about answering our prayer. And the first of these is that we must be praying according to the will of God. And that's a very important uh, emphasis that Scripture gives to us. So in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John says, These things I have written to you who trust in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And not only that, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And you notice there's three elements here in these three successive verses. There are those who trust in the Lord, and therefore they are, are praying, and they ask God for something, and he will hear. And in fact, the moment he hears, you can consider it as good as done. It reminds me of uh, that uh, story in Daniel chapter 9 where he was praying about the coming return of the people of Israel back to the promised land from captivity. The 70 years that Jeremiah had talked about were coming to an end. And so his mind turns in that direction. And when Gabriel shows up at the end of that prayer, 
He says in chapter 9 and verse 23 that at the very beginning of your prayer, God issued the command. So before he even got anywhere close to getting going with the prayer, God had already answered that prayer and had sent Gabriel with the instruction that he had. If you turn back to 1 John chapter 3, we also find these words that John wrote. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 21 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And you'll notice that's been John's emphasis in both of these texts. Where is our confidence? And that's really what we're talking about in this lesson. What confidence do I have that God cares about me? What confidence do I have that God will respond to what I ask of him, what I am yearning for? Maybe even on some level, do we really believe God can do what we ask of him but here is our confidence whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight well that makes it sound like it's a kind of a quid pro quo situation if I check off the boxes of doing this stuff God tells me to do then he's contractually obligated to check off the boxes on his list but that's not what this is this is his commandment that we trust in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him And so it's not the commandment keeping itself that is the central thing. It is the relationship that exists between God and us. And because of that, just as in a marriage where in a genuine marriage relationship that's functioning the way that it should, the husband wants to please the wife and the wife wants to please her husband. And so it is we want to keep the commands of God because we want nothing more than to please God. But that is an expression of our heart, our trust and love for him and so we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us and so again to trust in God to please God to obey God but all of this brings to mind what is the will of God what is it that God wants and uh, so it's not really about trusting in ourself which we could very easily fall into if you turn back to Matthew chapter 21 There's something Jesus says here about prayer in a different context that I think is instructive. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 21. Of course, the fig tree has withered here and the disciples are amazed. Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have trust and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, trusting, you will receive. And so, what is the will of God comes to mind once again. Uh, You know, what mountain does God want cast into a sea? You know, we often think of this prayer in terms of, oh, if I just had enough faith... And I wanted a mountain to be cast into the sea and I just prayed hard enough and sincerely enough it would happen. Well, is it God's will that a particular mountain be thrown into a sea? Is that something we, you know, you read the Bible and you say, let me tell you about God. He's all about throwing mountains and seas. He's just doing it all the time. 
No, and I think what is clear in the context here, when Jesus says this mountain, he means Mount Zion. He means there where the temple has been built. It is the whole temple system and everything it represents that is being cast into the sea. Same thing that was represented by the imagery of the fig tree that Jesus has come to curse because it is, it is barren. Uh, but what we realize from this is the problem of, of trust, and that's really what we want to talk about next here. That we have God's will, and it is our necessity of trusting in that will. Like Jesus says here, we need to pray trusting that this will happen. And, and so, uh, look in James chapter 1. We find James talking even about something as serious as suffering. And boy, if there's anything we're going to pray about, if there's anything that we're going to have some deep longing about, it's real, serious suffering. And what kind of God would continue my suffering? Or allow me just to keep going on and on and on in suffering? I understand it can be good for me. But we reach that point where I've learned my lesson. I've learned all that can be learned from suffering. Well, that's probably the best indication we have it. Uh, there is more that is yet to come. But what James says is considered all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your trust produces endurance, and endurance must have its perfect outcome, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, but maybe there is something you lack. So if you lack wisdom, in verse 5, he must ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in trust without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so what James is picturing here is a a, a person who part of his mind is given to God and he wants to be religious and wants to do the right thing. And so he prays, but he doesn't really trust God. He's not prepared to do whatever it is that God is asking of him. Part of his mind is devoted to something else. He's divided in that. And there is a person that is primarily positioned to fall into this idolatry of goes to church all the time, he studies the Bible all the time, he may be a preacher, he may be a Bible faculty member, but his religiosity is more for him. And it's just like that religious person in Old Testament times who's bowing down before an image of his own making. Look how religious I am, I'm really trying. But it's really a worship of self is what it has become. And ultimately, what all idolatry is, is an attempt to control. And that's what we need to remember when it comes to prayer, because when we think about things like COVID or travel or special circumstances particularly that pop in in our life, and there are things that happen, whether it's economically or in the, the realm of politics or our broader society, and we just start wondering, what does the future hold? How uncertain the future is. Well, that's true. But it's not uncertain any more so because something bad is happening that you don't like. I mean, your life could be going along swimmingly and your future is still uncertain. In the next five seconds, you could drop dead of an aneurysm. 
You have no idea what is in the future. What we do know is that the future is in the hands of God. And I just have to trust God. But genuinely trust God. Not this phony kind of trust where I'm really trusting in myself. And of course we realize ultimately that's going to fail because we don't have that kind of ability to control. But that's what religion does. It gives us some sense of You know, we push the right buttons, we pull the right strings, we offer the right sacrifices, then we somehow can manipulate God into making the future be what we want it to be. And so I want the answer to this question to be, yes, God will answer my prayer, he's going to do exactly what I tell him to do. But yes, I'm going to ask nicely, you know, those kinds of things. But it's really just a form of idolatry, a form of trying to control the future. But I have to let go of that kind of control. I have to acknowledge that the future is entirely in his hands. And all I can do about it is do what he tells me to do here and now as he has revealed it in scripture and as he has given me whatever wisdom I have to make practical application of these principles. So certainly we need to understand that we have the will of God and that we need to be asking in accordance with God's will. Also what John talks about in John chapter 14 and also in chapter 16 about asking for things in the name of Jesus. Well that's really no different than asking God because what he points out to us is the disciples are going to come to understand there really is no distinction to be made in terms of prayer between the Father and the Son. There is one God. And yes, he is manifested as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But to ask of Jesus is the same as to ask of the Father because they are one. They have a a perfect unity in their purpose, in their will. And so if we are asking according to the will of God and we are truly putting our trust in him then our prayers are going to be molded and fashioned by that. They're not going to become a gimmick by which we're trying to control and manipulate God. And they're going to become a genuine fixation, obsession with the will of God. So I hope we understand that, you know, and and it's not just this knee-jerk reaction to, well, I've got my requisition list. It's kind of like watching you know, a television program and an ad pops up and all advertising is geared toward a message something like this. How in the world can you continue to live one moment longer unless you have our product? Unless you're driving this kind of car or wearing these kind of clothes or going to these kind of places. I don't know how you can live with yourself. And they're trying to get us to part with our money to get whatever it is they're selling. And we make these knee-jerk responses sometimes. Oh, I've got to have that, you know. Well, is that what prayer is? You know, we see something, we've got to have it. Well, let's pray. Well, that's not the kind of praying we're talking about. It's this genuine relationship with God in which we are thinking of the Father's will as more important than what we want. And we are truly surrendering our life over to him and putting our trust in him. But the third principle that relegates this is we need to be praying according to the character of God just as surely as the will of God. You know, 
Part of the way we make sense of God's will is that we know God. And so when God speaks, what he says makes sense. We understand how to understand what God has spoken. And this is true of all communication. You know, when my father would say, clean the garage, I could have been a lawyer and said, well, what do you mean by the word clean? You know, that has a wide range of meaning. You know, microbiological, clean room, technology kind of clean? Surely not. And what, which garage are you talking about? You know, there are millions of garages around the world. I knew exactly what he meant because I knew him. I knew his character. I don't recall a, a single time that my parents said, don't go to the neighbor's house and break out their windows. And yet I never had the inclination to, I never intended to, and I knew for certain that had I done that, I would have been, well, I wouldn't be alive, but uh, how did I know that? Well, because my parents didn't need to give me a detailed list of the rules. I knew them and what was their will because of their character. And if we truly understand the character of God, that gets back to, you know, does, is God the kind of person that's going around throwing mountains into the sea? No. And so we can't expect that God is often going to be commanding us to take mountains and throw them into seas. But we can understand the things that are more important to God. If we turn back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, there's another statement that Jesus makes. And here it sounds even more absolute. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Of course, we have a well-known song that's rooted in these verses. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So is this an absolute promise? I mean, we don't have any conditional statement like if you ask according to the will of God or if you ask in my name, it just says if you ask. But you know, there are a lot of places in the Bible where absolute statements don't have to be made and, and yet they're still conditional or they sound absolute, but they are conditional. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that the three main passages that talk about the relationship of the Christian to the government which is Romans 13 and Titus chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 2, they all say obey the government. No if, ands, or buts, no qualifications, no conditional statements, and yet we know that command is conditional. We must obey God rather than men if we're put in that kind of situation. But Paul didn't focus on that in Romans 13 and elsewhere. And so it's entirely possible that we still understand, yes, these are not absolute statements. They are still conditional upon the will of God and whether we're truly trusting in our asking. But I think if you look at the next few verses, you see how this praying is rooted in the character of God. What man is there among you who when he, his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And so I think this begins us helping understand what's happening because if you, you kind of extend this analogy, do parents always give their kids everything they ask for? 
And so your child comes up and says, I want, uh, you know, a black mamba venomous snake. Oh, sure, son, because I love you so much and you asked, and so I'm going to give it to you. Or does the parent say, this is not what's best for you. And I could not in good conscience as a good father, you know, live with myself to do such a thing. What if your child asks for evil things? Does the father go ahead and give them to him or he will only give him the good gifts? That which is what is best. Now we may have fathers that will do silly things like that. You know, people get on TikTok to make fools of themselves doing all kinds of stupid things. Uh, I could just picture somebody having a video of their kid coming up say, can I have a venomous snake? Well, here you go, son. <laughs> Let's watch the video. Uh, how many you know, views can I get? Well, but God's not doing TikTok videos. God is true to his character. And so he will act in a way that is best for his child. And this is what brings us to how I would typically answer this question about how God will answer our prayers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes a rather extraordinary announcement. And it pops up in a most unexpected place because he's dealing with criticisms that are being made about him, about him changed his travel plans and things like that. I mean, he had planned to come to Corinth and uh, he changed his plan from the original. He was going to go to Macedonia first and come to Corinth. And he decided, well, I'm going to go to Corinth first then Macedonia, then come back to Corinth, and I get to see it twice that way. And they complained about the fact he changed his travel plans. And so picking up at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purposed, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there's yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But God is faithful, and our word to you is not yes and no, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. And Jesus is even called in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, the the faithful the amen. He's God's yes to us. And if you unpack the implications of what Paul is saying is that God's answer to your prayer is always yes. In the same way that a father's answer, a a good father's answer to his child is always yes. Now it's abundantly obvious to us that if we like that child ask for the wrong thing it's something that's not good for us, the superficial answer is no, you can't have that. But the real question here is, what is the prayer? What are we asking for? And if what we're really asking for is, God, I don't know much. Compared to you, I have the brain of an infant, and yet you care enough about me that you ask my preference. And so, in what little I know, If it doesn't matter to you, I would druther it be this way. But my real prayer is, you do what's best. And God's always going to answer that, yes. And I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in that. That that there is no doubt that God will always do what is best. 
Not necessarily just me personally. Do what's best for me to the disadvantage of everyone else. But what is best considering me, my family, the church, all how this might impact anyone else. And God's going to work out everything for the best possible outcome without forcing someone to do something against their will. How do you do that? It takes a God of enormous, infinite wisdom and power as well as love and compassion to pull something like that off. And I think that answers a great many things. If we could just wrap our mind around this fact that if I knew everything that God knew and I had the same power that God had and I cared about everybody the same unconditional, infinite way he does, I would make the exact same choice he would or he did. And if you can really come to trust that, to believe that, what a great comfort that is, the confidence that we have. And so, you know, God forbid, you know, later this week, I find out I'm diagnosed with, you know, stage four cancer of some kind. And I could not imagine that I would not desperately pray, God, heal me of this cancer. I still have children to raise. and I still want to see my grandchildren that are not born yet. I still feel like there's so much good to be done. And I would beg of God for life and healing. And I would want that desperately more than anything else just about. And surely if God loves me that much and he has the power to fix this and he knows what is best and surely that's what I want. This is going to how it's, it's going to turn out. But these, it becomes idolatry. It becomes me presuming upon the wisdom of God that I know just as well as God what the proper path is forward here. There never has been a question in my mind of what God can do. And there's no question in my mind about God's love for me. But I constantly question what he will do. Because I just don't know the circumstances. I don't know all the details. I don't know all of the factors that have to be involved in making a decision that is that profound. And that's why, if I can bring myself to truly trust in him, I think it'll all be okay. And that's what I try to tell my family. I might die in a car wreck. I might die this, that. And if so, don't lose faith in God. Don't think somehow God has failed us. It was for the best. We may not see it. We may not know exactly how. But that is the confidence we have in Christ. Because Jesus is the yes. Not yes, no, maybe, wait. It is always yes. Yes to what is the deepest, most fundamental prayer and yearning. Which is for what is right, what is good. What is the will of God and what is best? And that's what brings us to our final point here, which is we have to be praying in humility. We cannot be presuming upon the wisdom of God as if we could tell him what to do. And so we come to him in prayer in true humility. And there are two illustrations of this in the Bible that strike me. And the one is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. Of course, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we'll look at the account in Matthew chapter 26. And here, we'll pick up in verse 36. And of course, Jesus has come to Gethsemane. He tells his disciples to 
going to pray. He takes Peter and James and John a little bit further along. And he began to be grieved and distressed. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And of course, he does this three times. And and I don't think we're given the totality of the words that are said here. It's, it's this petition, that's the gist of it at least, of what he has appealed to the Father. And I know there have been some that have intended to read this as, well, surely Jesus wasn't asking to avoid the cross because he, he knows that's what he came to do. He had to do that. Maybe he's just praying for you know, less uh, pain or something like that. But once you understand the Old Testament background to the cup of God's wrath, There really is only one possible way, it seems to me, to read what Jesus is asking for here, and that is not to go to the cross. And yet he does pray that the Lord's will be done, and he knows the Lord's will is to go to the cross. So how can he pray both? Well, we often find ourselves in difficult circumstances like this as well. We may have a loved one that's dying in the hospital. The doctors say they will not last an hour. The end is certain. They're the experts and and a lot of times can know exactly, yes, this is what's going to happen. And yet we could still pray for healing and life. And there's nothing wrong with that because it is good, it is right, and that is the yearning of our heart. And we might tell ourselves intellectually that, yeah, although death is tragic, God can redeem it and bring some good out of it. And that is true, but that doesn't make death itself any less evil or any less tragic. It doesn't turn death into a good thing itself. And we can't help but yearn for life. But yet at the same time, knowing all the while, this is not God's will. We can't keep someone alive for 10,000 years if we just prayed earnestly enough or sincerely enough because that is not God's will. And the reason we are in this conflicted position is because we live in a broken world where what we yearn for is many times not possible. Because we want what is good, we want life, but the brokenness of this world says no, it's not all good and it's not all life. And Jesus understood that. And I think in humility again we come and we pray the yearning of our heart How did God answer Jesus' prayer? Well, he did have to drink the cup. But the prayer was answered yes. Because the real prayer, the deeper prayer, is your will be done. And nobody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ can offer a prayer to God thinking, This is what I demand of you, God, and you better do it. My will be done, not yours. That is not a genuine prayer, and it's certainly not in the name of Jesus or according to the will of God. And it's not a prayer in trust, in humility. But we pray, whatever our yearning is, we are free to pray. But our real prayer is, your will be done. You do what is best, and you do what is right. And that gives me great comfort. And Paul is another example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, with his thorn in the flesh. And God's answer to him was no in terms of taking away the thorn in the flesh. But his answer was the same yes that Paul had talked about at the beginning of the letter. That God's will be done. 
And God's power would be manifest through Paul's weakness. You know, it's often been said that the true character of a man is seen when he is on his knees in prayer with God. You know, it's just you and God. There's no one around to impress. There's no one around to try to persuade or influence. It's just the relationship that we have with God. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. That is who you really are. It's not about your money. It's not about your reputation. It's not about all the other things you've accumulated in life. But how you stand on your knees before God, that is the real you. And that is the real nature of whatever relationship you have with God. But also thanks be to God that it is in that same relationship that God is who he is. And he has revealed that character in Jesus Christ in the cross and in his vindication through his resurrection that we can know what real, unconditional, selfless, sacrificial, suffering love is. And it is that fact more than anything else settles the question of whether God loves us enough to answer our prayer with this resounding yes. Okay, he's got all power, but why is there so much evil in the world? Or he has infinite wisdom and knows the best path through life. But if God really loved us, why don't things work out a different way? Well, we need to understand what real love is. And just because things don't work out according to our desire doesn't mean God doesn't love us. He actually loves us so much that he will always do what is best for us. And how often I've looked back in my life, like Garth Brooks, and been thankful for silly things I prayed for, that fortunately God was saying yes to a deeper prayer. This is what I'm going to do for you. And so perhaps uh, some of the things we've talked about today have given you some thought about your relationship with God and what your kind of life of prayer is with him and again it's it's like shooting fish in a barrel i need to do better you you think of the ease on some level it appears that jesus had in going to the cross you know there's this moment of hesitation in the garden of gethsemane but having prayed that prayer and having been strengthened from that point on he just seems to make a beeline for the cross And I am ashamed to say that there are many times that I fail to come to God in prayer with the same kind of eagerness and directness that Jesus did in going to the cross. But the problem is Jesus loved me a whole lot more than I love Jesus. But I hope to do better and I hope I'm growing. And I know there's a group of people here that will work together with one another to accomplish that very end. And so at this time, we're going to sing this song, Near the Heart of God. And if there's some way we can have helped anyone, this is a good time to let that be known while we stand and sing the song of encouragement. Please, 
God, you are the creator of life. All things live through the inspiration of your spirit, and all things are redeemed through the sacrifice of your son. We want to recognize, Lord, that we've been placed in a time of of bounty, abundant food, abundant land, abundant knowledge, abundant grace, abundant love, abundant mercy, abundant peace and patience and kindness. So much that we are tempted to gorge ourselves on it. To have consumed too much and find ourselves out of shape. And precious things reveal themselves only in their passing. We are lost without you, Lord. So bless us with your warmth. Give to us clothes to cover us. Sell us gold refined by fire. And make us to see again. Must the precious things be few to us, Lord. Help us to find the margins of enough to practice restraint, that your sacrifice to us might be a savory smell, a sweet taste, a beautiful sight. And on this day of rest, Lord, bless us with the quiet to hear your knock on our door, a prayer whispered back to us, that we might rest in the abundance and patience 
that we might find patience and emergency and wisdom in the face of popular knowledge. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for the answering of our prayers, for your trust in us to do the right thing and to take no care for the morrow. We ask this in your son's holy name. Amen.